So, David, it's been a couple of weeks since the last time we talked. Um, what's what's at the top of your agenda? Uh, well, I'm giggling a little bit here because, my gosh, a lot is happening fast here. Um, so, you know, as we go on to, to do this recording, we now have some of the top picks for the incoming Biden administration in healthcare. I wanted to do a one one quick stop on, on just two housekeeping items that I think are very important to our members. The first one is, and that is that just recently, for the first time, um, the government, Medicare has decided that COVID-19 will now serve as a hardship exemption for people who are filing their information in MIPS. Now, surprisingly, I always thought that probably nephrologists were kind of low in MIPS participation, but we're now seeing that we're really at about 65% of domestic uh, nephrologists are actually reporting in MIPS. It's the biggest reporting program that Quality One in Medicare. So, but, but before you do that, can you just give us the quick one sentence description of MIPS? MIPS is one of the two value pathways under the quality payment program where you individually file your various metrics and you either get no adjustment, a penalty, or more likely a bonus. And, and what, what do you mean by a, a hardship exemption for uh, COVID-19? Well, they've always had them since they started the program, but primarily the hardship exemptions were usually for places that were, um, you know, natural disaster areas like wildfires, uh, hurricanes, things of that nature. Um, and so we've kept the outreach to our members fairly focused in those particular areas. They were geographically limited, but this time they're going to allow it to be you to uh, file for hardship exemption on the basis of COVID-19. And, and you were starting to say what that what that meant for our members. Well, it could mean that a lot of our members might be able to actually ask for much of their um, reporting to either be zeroed out or just not included this uh, for 2020. And uh, that also has been postponed. It was due in December. They made this announcement recently, and they've also extended the deadline to take the, the file by February 1, 2021. Wow, that's I, I'm not sure... I expected that. Was that something you thought could happen or it sounds like you didn't expect it either? I thought that they might consider it. I didn't expect them to do it this quite so wholeheartedly. Um, they didn't really put any restrictions. They basically just said, go ahead and apply and apply now and then we'll deal with it as we see your application. So yes, it was a bit of a surprise. It was a very good surprise. I'm struck. It kind of reminds me of uh, people whose kids are applying for, who are seniors in high school who are applying for colleges that, you know, for the most part, the SAT, most institutions have waived the SAT. This is kind of a, a similar thing in the healthcare arena. Um, what, what's your, uh, the second issue that, that you wanted, housekeeping issue you wanted to mention? Real fast, we've talked about the position fee schedule. It was finalized. The increases for nephrologists will be about 6% on average in 2021. Starting and um, the ones for home dialysis will increase approximately 30%. We will probably be revisiting this issue because there is a battle for some adjustments to be made on Capitol Hill. We'll see what happens. Do those legislative proposals try to claw back the increases for nephrology and home dialysis or are those sort of separate tracks? They, they don't necessarily try to claw them back. They try to kind of hold off on the overall um, evaluation and management cut code in the codes. Um, because of the fact that E&M coding and, and its payment is budget neutral. They're trying to not have that happen. Um, so, you know, in, in, in kindness to everyone else in, in the House of Medicine, ASN has been willing to, uh, you know, look at a budget neutrality plan to make the, sure that everyone doesn't get hurt. 
but not at the expense of clawing back what nephrology is receiving starting 2021. That, that's interesting. So what do you think is going to happen over the, the sort of rest of the lame duck in terms of either, um, you know, this legislative proposal or other ones? I'm just sort of curious as to your um, current thinking on what, what's likely to happen over the next couple of weeks. I'm, I'm increasingly beginning to think this one's a long shot to be included in the final package uh, because it is expensive. It does come with an expensive uh, price tag. It's, it goes up into the billions. So I'm thinking that it, it could just you know, quietly go away. And, and as you know, and you can tell everybody, one of our, our longer term from years and years and years priority, however, may get included. And that's the immunosuppressive coverage because it's actually been now marked as a cost saver. And you can tell everybody just how long that has been a priority of ASNs. Yeah. I mean, I started the organization in 2008. And at that time, people were talking about, you know, the decade or so of work on that issue. So, and, and we've talked about the specifics in the past, but but I do think um, that it's very likely that that as part of a sort of CARES 2 package, they will include coverage for immunosuppressive drugs, which is just, um, you know, to get that done this year is just remarkable. And I think, you know, the entire community has, has worked um, together on that. And it's, it's something that has been a really unifying issue. So, you know, just credit to everyone. And, and I'm very optimistic that will happen by you know, the end of the calendar year. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed. Now, do you want to have a little bit of fun with who's on first? Because we've got some announcements out uh, to lead HHS under the incoming Biden administration. Yeah, so so there's been a lot of uh, recent announcements, and and I think it would be helpful, David, if you could just walk us through as the Biden administration um, starts to take shape um, now, and, and obviously will we'll come into power and by the end of January. Um, what does the healthcare team look like? Well, um, and I, I'm going to ask you guys to help me if I get any pronunciations incorrect, and I apologize in advance. But starting out to head up HHS. Well, first of all, President-elect uh, Biden has selected Javier Becerra, and you and I both know he's a big name in, in Democratic politics and has been the Attorney General of California for the last four years, um, and he will be the leader as the Secretary of Health and Human Services. He's someone that when he was in the House, um, he was in the House of Representatives for quite some time and was really seen as a rising star and had always been really interested in health care issues and health policy issues and a big supporter of medical research. So, you know, I think he's someone who will likely continue, you know, the, the progress that has been made over the last you know decade plus in terms of um, HHS's focus on kidney health and on um, healthcare related issues related to the 37 million people with kidney diseases in the United States. Yes, absolutely. I mean, he's been a champion uh, for both healthcare and for those who are really affected by disparities in healthcare a lot. Um, and as you said, he also helped champion the Affordable Care Act through Congress and through the House. And he was one of the lead Democrats on the Ways and Means Committee dealing with healthcare issues. So he is he's going to be a strong force and he's a really interesting choice because he's also been a Democratic attorney general who has fought the Trump administration in court more than a hundred times in different filings and has led the battle to try to save the Affordable Care Act uh, in the discussions that have made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, so he is going to be a thinker in a lot of different ways, not just about health care, but how to package it in such a way as to, to make sure that it can withstand challenges. Yeah, just to that point, um, I finally had a chance to read. There was an excerpt from former President Obama's new book 
um, that was published in the New Yorker, and it's it's entitled "The Health of a Nation: How the Affordable Care Act Was Passed." And um, it's available online, so you don't have to be a subscriber to the New Yorker. Um, it is a long piece; it's probably in the sort of six thousand words um, arena, but it's really just a beautifully done assessment. The first half really talks about efforts to bring health coverage to Americans through history. And then it shifts into a real discussion about sort of the, the process it took from a legislative perspective to, to, to pass the Affordable Care Act. And I, you know, even if you if you're someone who who opposes the legislation, it's still a really interesting read and gives you some insights as to you know, how difficult an issue health reform is, but also um, just the politics around the issue and, and sort of how it interplays with, with some of the changes we've seen in American politics over the last, um, you know, 20 years. It's, it's just a very well done piece. Um, so again, it's in the November 2nd um, issue of The New Yorker. But if you Google um, Barack Obama health reform, The New Yorker, it comes up. And, and again, it's called a health, The Health of a Nation. And just I highly recommend it to anyone who's interested. It, it is a really good piece. I, I do agree with you. And it, it really kind of goes to one of the points you and I have talked about on the sidelines here, uh, just thinking about this podcast, and I know we'll be doing it uh, some more, which is just basically what the approach of the incoming administration will be. And, and that whole period with Obama is, is actually kind of a cautionary tale as well. Obama thought of building capital and, and kind of retaining it, spend it as needed political capital. And the discussion that you and I have been having about whether that's, whether that's really a strategy in this current extremely partisan era, uh, of whether or not you can afford to build capital and, and expect to be able to use it, or whether you really just do uh, just a full blast and try to do anything you can and everything you can as fast as possible. So, so in addition to, I think that's well said. And so, in addition to the um, proposed HHS secretary, who are some of the other uh, members of the Biden health team? Well, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, um, who is going to take over CDC, and I could have just it's easily been happy to also have her take over uh, CMS if that had been the way it had gone, but um, it's going to be CDC, and she is uh, an infectious disease expert um, and chief of infectious disease at Massachusetts General Hospital. Um, I was looking at some of her podcasts uh, with different people, and uh, she'll be taking over CDC, and she had some really clear thinking. I should be able to post it somewhere of, of about how to think about uh, herd immunity. Um, and so what's really important is we look at this right now very clearly, uh, not impressed, does not think it's a reasonable strategy for the United States, talks about the failures that Sweden had with it and, and makes a really strong point that 47 percent of adults in the United States probably have some comorbidity. So the idea that you could just let young people out and and build herd immunity and keep the rest of the population safe just isn't workable. It just doesn't make sense. I've been struck that um, it, it seems as though that the ID community in particular, but then other sort of health policy experts have been very pleased with her, the announcement that she would be proposed to, to lead the CDC. Um, and, and you know, I think someone with her background in the current environment makes a lot of sense. So, okay, in addition to um, Dr. Walensky, what about other uh, members of the Biden healthcare team? Well, uh, the president-elect has also selected Dr. Vivek Murthy um, to be Surgeon General, and this is going to be a return role uh, for Dr. Murthy, who has served as Surgeon General before. And I think he's also an extremely um, 
qualified candidate and, and clearly having been Surgeon General before, and I think he will be very much uh, important and useful to the Biden team, and I think everyone is very excited about that as well. So I've been a little bit confused by the role that, that Anthony Fauci is going to play in the new administration. My understanding is he will continue to lead the institute at, at NIH, but it sounds like he'll have additional responsibilities. I think that the uh, unique role that, that Dr. Fauci is going to play is also part of the unique times that we're in and the unique role that he has played in the government uh, through multiple crises, through AIDS, through Ebola, through COVID. Um, he's been leading infectious disease efforts for several decades now. He's an excellent scientist. And also there's just a time when I think Biden is saying, I need no-nonsense people around me. And he is clearly one of those. So I think he's going to have a really impactful role um, in both infectious disease and just in general. He's just a very solid thinker about healthcare. I'm struck in, in maybe, you know, this could be sort of our, our closing issue, which is it seems as though what the Biden transition team is doing is identifying people with expertise in two arenas. One is the Affordable Care Act and thinking about health care coverage and then being able to ba balance the challenges from the left and the right in terms of, you know, an issue for more of an all-payer approach, Medicare for all, universal health care on the one side, and then efforts to, if you will, shore up the Affordable Care Act and, and think about more of an incremental approach on the other side. And then the second set is people who are really expert in um, managing us through the COVID-19 pandemic and as we transition into the, the vaccine, um, into moving closer to um, being able to reopen, you know, all parts of the country, um, you know, people that can sort of think through those issues as well. Is that how you're reading things? I, I am reading it that way as well. And, and I think uh, part of what I find very interesting about that is it's it is, it's kind of got several implications. One, the idea is that I think that they want teams that are going to be ready to hit the ground running uh, absolutely at breakneck speed to try to bring COVID-19 under control. That is in first, second, and third most priority. They're going to be doing that. And at the same time, as that house gets organized, I think they, what they want is they want the, they want the team to be broad enough to be able to start looking at how to make sure to protect what is there um, in terms of the Affordable Care Act and look at how they can expand coverage into areas, everything from food security to social determinants of health and using waivers for Medicaid expansion. In other words, they don't want to sit around and wait and ask uh, Mitch McConnell if he's willing to play you know, with them on various policies. I, don't, I think they pretty much want to move without having to go through the asking permission phase. Well, thanks, David. I'm, I'm really struck by how many things are happening simultaneously, both in terms of, if you will, closing out um, this year and, and thinking about um, some of the transitional issues as we move from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. Well, I think that um, a lot of the, <clears throat> the talking heads recently in, in the political world have been making one point uh, very clearly. This is an extremely different style of president than the, the president we've had for the last four years. Um, I think we will see a lot of change uh, and a lot of a very significant difference in how it operates and how it all occurs.